0: Hello PKMers, I have some exciting news, which is I am building a new course, The Art of Linked Reading, and this is a course that helps people who struggle to find, actively consume, remember, communicate, and apply their insights from books learn how to do so with linked note-taking apps like Obsidian, Tana, OneNote, and more. So if that sounds like you, you're in the right place because you can sign up for the waitlist to the course in the description of this podcast. And I hope to see you in the course once it is out. Have a great episode. Hello PKMers, welcome back to Personal Knowledge Management with Aiden Halfon, the podcast where I interview fellow PKMers and dive into the unique ways they use their PKM systems for work, creativity, and life. This week we have Ilya Shabanov, a Obsidian note taker and academic. Spending 12 years in industry, he daringly decided to get his PhD in biology at 36 and managed to get his first paper published in just six months. He hosts the Effortless Academic Newsletter, which helps people learn to leverage modern information tools and systems to excel as a researcher or student. He teaches in-depth, long-format tutorials on how to do things better in academia, like note-taking, reference management, writing, publishing, and visual thinking. Ilya, I am so glad that you came on. How are you doing?
1: Hey, yeah, uh, thanks Hayden. Yeah, I'm I'm doing all right. Since it's my first podcast, obviously like a tiny bit excited. Uh so yeah. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you're gentle with me.
0: Oh, I'll be I'll be totally gentle. I won't I won't ask anything like what's the meaning of life? I'm gentle.
1: Oh, I this is something that I actually excel at, yeah, but the rest is gonna be
0: Maybe I'll ask that later then. <laughs> my my first question won't be what is the meaning of life? It is uh, what is your story?
1: Yeah, so um, depending on how far back you want to go, but I had a, quite a lot of movement in my lifetime. So I'm uh, born in, in Soviet Russia in so 1985, and uh, that, that country basically doesn't exist anymore. So my parents, uh, who are also academics, they moved around the world. So I've lived in Germany, France, Spain, uh, a few months in South Africa. I lived in the United States, so I just constantly moving around. And uh, now I'm I was based in Germany. That's also where I studied, and I consider myself more German than um, yeah any other nationality. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in terms of my story related to personal knowledge management, so that's that's something that I feel I'm, I'm catching up on something that I should have done a decade ago. Because when I was done with my master's at 24, 25 or so, I felt like what what should I do and an opportunity came along to create a startup with a friend, so that startup still exists. It's called uh, Neuronation, it's a brain training app. It's actually quite big, but I left it also a long, long time ago. And mm-hmm. after my master's, I was like, I- I'm not doing any more research, this is pointless. This is like such small things that are really not moving anywhere. Um, but I actually had like a good thing going for me, I was just maybe a little bit. Cocky, maybe a little bit too um, ambition towards you know. I need to go into business and make money and blah blah blah, which I think is again normal for people coming from poor countries with poor backgrounds like the Soviet Union that you, you want you want to make money first. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's that went on for another five years. I was maybe twenty nine and completely burned out from the industry. So I was mm-hmm. basically the the CTO. So I did the, all the coding and it's all the brain training apps development. A deployment and so on so that was a yeah like a big big chunk of work and a lot of people uh, a lot of personal connections also you know died over this because it's closer than a relationship I would say mm-hmm. yeah and then afterwards I was just yeah what I don't know if you're familiar with Jack Kerouac what he calls the Dharma bums so those people that just just roam around the world and uh, do tried to find the meaning of life, so that's what I was doing. So I just went to an Indian ashram after uh, going out of my company and uh, spent there like a good solid six months. And afterwards, was just bouncing off, creating little yoga events here and there, creating uh, all kinds of funky dance and movement workshops uh, with my friends. And uh, yeah, and that's that's also after a couple of years, I was just. You know poor always because of doing that so i started developing websites and became more of a web developer so that was the thing that that was going for me in the last uh yeah six, six years or so um but it's an incredibly dull job yeah so most most engineering mm. things are very very dull because you don't really move anywhere you you. You have this analogy of going from A to B and the engineer always takes a straight path. So if your goal doesn't change, you always walk the same path basically back and <laughs> forth because it's always this one straight line. Uh, like the artist can explore, but the artist has no um, kind of no goal. So you have to set yourself your own goals. And the scientist is somewhere in between, right? So the, th- the scientist has goals, but there's no clear path. So how do, you, how do you go from, from A to B? Because you have to experiment, you have to explore, and then, then this exploration, your your goal already has changed. So if if you start a PhD, you know that you start without anything and then you have 55 ideas and then you pursue one, but you might have as well pursued all the other 54. Uh, so that is that is what kind of brought me to academia. Mm. And I felt there was also a little bit left because back back when I finished my master's, I actually got some... Awards, how um, important it was. It was an archaeology and computer science crossover. And so the archaeologists are like, yay, way to go. Do it, Ilya. Do it, do it. But I was like, nah, I just would rather develop a couple of games for, you know, maybe make some money down the road. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But, you know, academia has its own reward system. And that that is just that you're doing something that nobody else could. You know, Mm. anything in engineering, you're sort of replaceable. Entrepreneurship less so, but still more academia, really unique because there are so many topics to go. And so that's how I basically became then uh, at, at 36, decided I want to do something. And at this point, I was like, okay, what do I want to do? I can basically choose whatever I want to do and just I have to volunteer. And then I thought I should do a bachelor's, I should do a master's. And yeah, some very smart person at the University of Arizona said, hey, yeah, do a PhD. You know, you just need to volunteer a little bit. You'll have enough uh, kind of know-how to do something. And that was very smart, you know, that that one person, I don't even remember the name, but uh, yeah, University of Arizona in Tucson.
0: And you should get a badge. They should get a badge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: um, yeah and that's, that brought me to a lab and I, I basically interviewed with four different labs. And um, one of them was completely obscure to me what they're doing, but I really liked the PI, Ross Buchan, and uh, that's, we kind of became really close friends and, he respected my absolute lack of knowledge in biology, and I respected his incredible patience and kind of the willingness to uh take on somebody like me as like okay, everybody's a bird, and then you take on a fish into your nest you know it doesn't make sense, but in some way it it really did make sense, and we did make a kind of a good couple um yeah, and so that's how I- became then, um, you know, you said I published the first paper in six months. I actually submitted it after six months. Like publishing took another, I don't know, seven months or so until this whole review cycle There were not many reviews, but it still took them many, many months to get it done. Uh, But yeah, but this, this was it. And the paper was kind of methods paper. So it was very heavily... Just um, like an algorithm uh, coding thing that I developed and a piece of software that came with it. Something that I already could do. And the biology came came on top of it. And uh, other people also subst- sub- supplemented that. And we tested it and realized like it works. So out with it. And I also kind of had a deadline because I wanted to apply for PhDs. And so you know I started in April, May. And the PhD application, I think, is like late November, or early November. So we had to get it done until then to have something to show for. Otherwise, I couldn't have gotten into any PhD programs. Wow. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, I mean, even then, uh, you know, now I'm in New Zealand. I should be in the United States. Yes, why? Because uh, again, ge- geopolitical things happening in my life. Um, the, the embassy, the US embassy, just couldn't get the student visa for me in time to go study, and so all this mm. process, you know, applying for for years, studying, all went to nothing. <laughs> It's oh. an amazing thing, yeah, because it's uh, just, just, it's really like I applied to 12 universities. Like everybody that applies in the U.S. knows that's at least $2,000 plus all so the foreign fees, visa fees, and so on. I yeah. thousands of dollars. is like wasted because they gave me the visa three weeks late. And oh. it literally takes like four or five months. But um, I mean, I think it was because of what was happening in the Ukraine at this moment. And so it's yeah. uh, understandable. But uh, yeah, that's how I ended up in New Zealand instead.
0: And now I'm an
1: ecologist more than a biologist. I mean, even though they're connected, but ecology is still its own thing. You know, it's not microbiology.
0: Yeah. You said you spent 12 years in industry before deciding to go do your PhD at 36. I'm curious, what was going through your head when you made the
1: switch? Boredom. Look, life is about like really enjoying it somehow. So if you're sitting there and you, you have nothing to do, especially those COVID times, and you uh, I was trying to become a carpenter because I thought that was cool. We were trying to do some homesteading because that was interesting. Uh, but I was always having my website development business on the side, which pays well, right? You don't need to do that much, but you, and you can do it from anywhere in the world. Yeah, um, But yeah, it's just what I say, like, you need something bigger, maybe, you know, in life, especially if you don't have kids, like I don't have kids. And So like, what what do you invest your energy in? Like another real estate website that nobody really cares about? Mm. It's just kind of not enough, you know, you, you need something bigger. And I think that's yeah. the, the idea of a uh, human mind always needs some sort of direction. And that direction, if, if that lacks, then you kind of... You settle down, you become uh, kind of mentally obese, I would say. You, you think the same thing to so become... <laughs> mentally you know, obese. Yeah, it's just like you know this, this this type of, you know, where you're really rigid mentally. You can't really move from A to B. You, like you want your one thing, you want your stake, blah, blah, blah. Like all that comes because you, you don't, you know, you, you don't have a goal to go towards. Your goal does not have to be grand or anything. You just have to be interesting. So I would say, you know, boredom is a big driver. Mm, mm-hmm. mm. But in a positive yeah. sense, not in the sense of uh, like, you know, I'm sitting and switching Netflix. No, it's just like you want more. You're hungry for life. So mm. like you're, it's, uh, that's, that's the idea.
0: Yeah. I'm curious. What was it about academia that promised to take away that boredom?
1: Well, there you can, uh, you know, depends on how deep you want to dig down. But for example, my dad was always an academic. I kind of respected it, but I also rebelled against it so i I saw the merit in it i saw also the downsides of it so i did want it and did not want it at the same time so maybe that you know played one role the other thing is that you are working on something that is entirely novel and if you're an engineer it's just none of the stuff that you do is really entirely novel i could say you know consumer engineer if you're really doing industry stuff then of course you know you go beyond that but 90% of engineers are probably doing something that's just applying something that somebody else invented on a new problem so it's not really so interesting and academia is different you know you look into something and just imagine microbiology you have this little cell that's literally you're made of these things but you never see it and so this whole complex world of of things is happening right there you just need to look up from your keyboard or look down from your keyboard and you're already in this world and you <coughs> see it only in this abstract abstract sense that's has like a lot of magic and mysticism in it and also beauty and that's what i really like about it i guess
0: yeah wow yeah. the the way you could describe it i can just hear the passion <laughs> mm-hmm. and most academics don't have a content creation channel on the side so i'm i'm really interested how did you go, how how did you journey into beginning this newsletter and personal knowledge management, uh, uh, talking about personal knowledge management online?
1: Well, yeah, yet, yet again, the immigration is uh, to thank for that, because when I came here to New Zealand, uh, for some weird reason, uh, the immigration to get me the visa for a studentship uh, just took six months. I don't know why. It's, it says, you know, on average, it takes them about two weeks to do that. But for some reason, it took them six months to process my visa so that I can finally start. I was here on, on tourist visa all the time. I was running low on, on money. And then I decided, okay, I'll do something else. And I saw a, a post by uh, Mushtaq Bilal, I think, you know, he wrote something about Obsidian. I was like, fairly simple. I was like, yeah, I can do that too. So I wrote down how I actually take notes and how I do things and uh, posted it underneath. I had no followers on Twitter, nothing. And then like, boom, suddenly I get 40,000 views and uh, I had like 200 new followers or 100 something new followers. and I was completely blown away. I was like, wow, that is so cool. And that's how it started. And it started in December last year, so 2022. So really very, very recently. And then I basically spent all my time and was completely engrossed in this project and uh, having this this goal. Um, and then in April, I started to actually do the PhD. And at this point, I had already two webinars and already finished the course and was kind of doing money on the side with that thing. So it, it became a little bit of a necessity also to continue because mm. that's that's my source of income or the, the biggest one.
0: Yeah. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah, it it's so engaging. When you get into it, the same thing happened to me. I posted one video about the Zettelkasten method of note-taking and it just absolutely exploded. And I was like, whoa, what? (laughs) Like, what's going on? (laughs) And uh, from there, I just got completely absorbed. I'm curious, what were some of the problems that you were helping people navigate in your content related to academia that you think they resonated over?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think the biggest problem when, when you start with not taking an academia is that you are not aware of how much stuff you actually forget. So uh, you, know, you read something and you feel like, oh, yeah, I learned something. Then, you know, you read something else and ah, learn something else. So there's always this kind of constant horizon of what you know. And that horizon moves with you. If you stay in one field, it kind of grows because you repeat things, you know, stop forgetting them. But if you keep moving and exploring, then your horizon moves with you. But when you start taking notes, there's like a very clear trail going all the way back. And when you look at your notes, you're like, oh, wow, I used to know that. And in a way, you still do know it. And you still can use that information. And so when, when you start with this personal knowledge management, it's really surprising just how big your horizon can get, because suddenly you don't use your brain to, to store information. You you just use your know, strategic skill set and your, your system to store information. And that, that becomes very, very powerful, I think, to 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 use that. So I don't know if I if I get the, the question correct.
0: No, you totally did. I and and inside of that. I'm interested if you had to summarize some of the best mindsets that you learned in terms of personal knowledge management and academia, what would you what would you say they are?
1: Yeah, for sure. Like for, for me, uh, the reason why I even started using these kind of complicated systems is because I felt that at 36, I will be not competitive with uh, young people with a fresh mind. <laughs> so, uh, I started taking some of the fish oil and DHA to to keep my brain healthy and whatnot, generally much more healthy. And yeah. Uh, yeah, and then started reading all those things. And of course, there's the the famous Sönke uh, Z- Ahrens, uh, the guy who uh, wrote mm. recently about um, Zettelkasten. And so yeah, so I read this and that was kind of, you know, it's it's a bit I feel it's a bit antiquated because you can do so much more, right? You can you can make like much crazier link structures than than what um uh, Nicholas Newman envisioned. And then there's all these other systems like what Nick Milo is doing. Um yeah, you can use some things, but it's kind of too simple for academia because you need these Really, um, you need to, to tell whenever you write something that like what is the source of this little statement and what is this paper. So papers have a much central role rather than your own ideas. So I think you know because it's it's a lot of it is just learning and then a little is application. While uh, you know in, in other systems it's a lot more application because you can be creative and you, you just need a little input. So it's kind of the pyramid is on its head, for academic systems. And so that's why I think uh, I started doing a little bit my own thing and trying to to be like very practical and do whatever works yeah Mm.
0: so it sounds like in academia a lot of the uh note-taking is more learning based and less application based as as far as like the field that you're in and that's really interesting to hear because for me my note-taking system is predominantly for content creation Uh, and, and also schoolwork, but the content creation is heavily application-based, uh, because I'm writing stuff like all the time. Whereas, I mean, I'm assuming in academia, the actual, uh, writing of the paper, you're, you're not writing a paper every week. That would be, (laughs) that would be a very, very, uh, prolific academic, (laughs) um, I am interested. What are some of the biggest misconceptions people have in academia about knowledge management?
1: Yes, I thought I thought about this uh, also. Why why do so people so few people use it? And I think, like first of all, there is maybe you know like the, the most uh, surreal of all the reasons for me is that people have a sense of, you know, academia should have some something noble. You know, it should be like kung fu. You know, it's just like everything <laughs> is in mind it's perfect. You know, you have these <clears throat> and these people, like I don't know Einstein, sitting there somewhere in 1910, and they meet and they discuss heavy academic topics, and everything is in their head. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so the, all these, yeah, all those things they happen, but I think. That is not true. Like academia is more like mixed martial arts or Krav Maga, you know, whatever works. If you uh, find your, your little way of optimizing things, then then do it, you know, don't don't rely on, on being somehow perfect in your mind because we are not perfect. We're very flawed beings, uh, like emotionally and practically and in any other sense. And the moment we acknowledge it, like our whole life gets better and then also our note-taking skills get better. So then another aspect that I'd say is that people need some sort of you know curiosity like uh, what, like curiosity drives a little bit the, the note-taking thing because you only take note ta- notes about something that you're really really interested in and if you're not interested in it like it, it's not worth taking notes but the law of how to create creativity is to to put as much into your mind as much as many different things as possible and uh, i read this in some teenage magazine you know 30 years ago, years ago, so just read everything, about world of wonders, and uh, that's how you become creative, and I think it's absolutely true, so taking notes, like, really makes you engage with with many types of different content, you know, if if you know there's this website, eon.co, it just publishes essays, just really long essays on the most random of topics and like absolutely love it because it really gives me also ideas for my <laughs> own research and things like that. So I think this is uh, like one big um, thing that, that people need to look out for. And um, yeah, so I don't know, I think people also overestimate maybe their own mind and underestimate the power of what you can do with those systems. Like there's just no kind of n- com- comparison like, what do you compare it with? You know, there's no way even to measure how well your mind is trained, how many facts, you know, you just, you know, you admire certain people, you don't admire other people. But that, that is something that you can train. It's like, you know, going to the gym, but instead of, you know, pushing weights, you, you really understand how to structure knowledge better. And there's just so much knowledge, there's no other way we can do it. And another aspect, I think, is also that it's just a lot of overhead right and so in that overhead often you need to to put it up front and only reap the benefits once you have you know 500 notes then you start noticing oh wow that really like when when your notes kind of are bigger than than the horizon of things that you can imagine in your mind or can you store in your mind then it becomes really powerful because then you're constantly expanding your horizon by your notes giving you new insights new ideas new ways of putting things and uh, just just reminding you and so once people really realize how how powerful that is, I think many more people would do this. And then of course it needs to become part of uh, curriculum uh, and, and universities um, to, for people to really engage with that. It really is not mm. that complicated, right? It's not that complicated, but it still is not complete basic. So
0: mm, yeah, there there were three things in there that I found really interesting. The the first is this notion that note taking isn't uh isn't necessary if you like think that you know what you're consuming when you're consuming it like uh almost like intellectual uh neglect or something i don't know what to call it but like it's so easy to think you understand something right after you've consumed it yeah. it's only a week later when you're trying to think back to that thing that you realize like oh, i don't remember anything <laughs> about that mm. thing that i consumed And I I really like what you said about uh, creativity in academia, because I feel like from the outside, a lot of people tend to see it as not a a creative field. And I think that's really misguided, because Mm -hmm. it it is profoundly creative, like you're you're literally creating new knowledge. Um, So I I love what you said about the Eon articles, like just getting weird stuff into your, into your brain to spark that creativity, uh, that much more. And, uh, also what you said about it being less difficult than people, like it, people think like, it's very, uh, hard when you're first getting into PKM to navigate. Cause like, you don't know what your thinking style is. You don't know what tools you want to use. You don't know what methods you should use. And it's, it's really when you come out a little bit through that beginning uh, sludge that you start to see the, the light <laughs> at the end of the tunnel.
1: Yeah, I think it's really like playing an instrument when when you learn to play the piano or guitar, people will say, how do you have to sit in front of the piano? Like, who, who the hell cares? You know, I have to press those buttons here. Like, let me alone with my sitting. But no, you know, like 15 years down the road it becomes very important how you sit and how you hold the guitar or, you know, the piano. And I think that's the same thing here. You have a lot of overhead to learn before, uh, you, you really understand why you had to learn that. And, you know, maybe it's just something that we also need to, to learn how to teach PKM ideas to people. And mm. That's something that, you know, everybody's experimenting with, including myself. Yeah. Well, yeah. on that note, what is
0: your personal method of trying to teach PKM academia principles right now?
1: Yeah. So I, I think. My method is is a hybrid of everything that I could find. You know, whenever I find something that, that works, I kind of try to incorporate it. Um, but just in the very simplest form, I split my notes in, in four categories. And I say, okay, well, here are notes on all the papers that I have read. They're just summaries and I can link to them everywhere. And there are notes that just collect facts that are interesting from those papers. So you, you uh, think of it as you get a box full of puzzle pieces so this is your paper has many many knowledge elements They take each puzzle piece and you make a note on that now you can start linking those puzzle pieces together to create a big picture and this might be mm. uh this might be comprised of many papers you know it's it's not just yeah. one jigsaw puzzle it's like a giant jigsaw puzzle of, of everything of all the papers together and so these these are the links then you you start outlining those new ideas and thoughts uh, in in special notes that you know you can call thought notes or sometimes i call them project notes so you just have a, basically a project that goes deeper into one question and there's 55 different methods how you do it and they they relate to many different concepts many different aspects of what data you have and so on and then at the end is, is something i would call outline notes where i just summarize my knowledge or document whatever i've been doing and that's a cycle yeah the outline eventually becomes a publication and at the beginning you just put put papers in so there's much more nuance to this that's the whole my whole twitter is uh like filled with these ideas i have a course about nine hours where i just talk about those things and show exactly like this is how it works and so on but in a nutshell i would say you know these are those four things and That's also another aspect, I think, of of academic knowledge systems as as opposed to personal knowledge systems, is that they also require this big project management skill set, right? Yeah, like usually the things that I'm working on, even to just dig into one question can take me weeks right so it's it's rare that if you you do a content creation or something okay let's start a blog or whatever let's write like 10 articles it won't take you weeks it will be much faster in a way to conceptualize that and then maybe execution but in academia things are very very slow and so you need a little bit of this organization thing and yeah obsidian like the tool that i'm using is Absolutely good for that because you can do it in fifty-five different ways. But it's in a way also horrible for that because you can do it in fifty-five different ways. So it's <laughs> difficult to uh, figure it out. Um, but yeah, I would say you know just just try to separate your things into as small of concepts as possible and link those concepts and then document your linking process. It's just mm. a sentence. I don't yeah. know how deep you want me to to go into this, but of course you can talk about it all day.
0: Yeah, I heavily got reminded when you talked about the breaking of your summaries into individual nuggets and then linking them together of Sanka Aaron's Zettelkasten, which does a similar similar idea of like uh, creating atomic notes out of things and then linking those together. Uh, And I know Nick Milo and a lot of other people in the PCAM community have similar marketing terms comic note, concept note, whatever you want to call it. I'm curious, what do you think is going through your head when you're deciding what to atomize? And also, is there a difference between the individual golden nuggets that you're taking in academia in comparison to what we might be used to outside of academia?
1: i give you the analogy of of a plant, really, so a plant will always invest the minimal resources it can unless there is some gain out of it. So yeah. if, you, if you start over-atomizing and creating 55 nodes, you're already kind of on the wrong path. It's like, you know, a plant is tiny and it has already five leaves. It's not going to support it. It's just, it's just not yeah. going to work. So instead, you know, I just start with one big note. It can be a collection node on everything that I know about forests Yeah, very big topic. So you know you can spend forty-five careers on forests. So then you say, okay, well let's let's split it down. When you realize it not just gets too big, let's split it down. And forest mortality, forest succession, forest growth, CO two, and so on. So you get five more different nodes, and uh, those you can organize almost in in a tree-like structure. So you have this parent, which is forest. Now instead of containing all the information. You say, okay. now it has four children nodes and it becomes more of a map of content or a table of content where you just write and then, you know, you link. And then those those nodes contain the bulk of the information that gets migrated there. So, yeah, just say start really with big, big, ugly, fat nodes that just don't do anything and and just are completely messy. And then over time, refine what you really need refining. Because especially in academia, chances are whatever you read, you won't really use that because you're um, like a little bit, I call it the the detective mindset when you have the literature review. So a lot of people have this collector mindset and say, okay, let's collect 500 papers and let's just like read them down like a computer does. It's it's not going to work for you. You're going to be completely overwhelmed, waste a ton of your time. Much better is to be a detective. You know, you start, you know, you read. One or two papers and you decide what to read next based on what you you know and then you know you get new clues and then you you get to reevaluate your goals and so on and so you move and really take clue after clue and the same is with the notes yeah so you you have big notes that may may contain information that you will never use so why spend time on atomizing them and thinking about structure and so on just you know link them heavily so you can find them later on and then um you know really go only deep if you need to so that's mm-hmm answering yeah,
0: mm. I'd say that. yeah
1: yeah but it's true you know it's it's like there's nothing new in all these concepts you can just throw all those things together like yeah settle is one of the things that i i felt were super good but i also felt it was a bit you know too rigid you make those literature notes and you have those permanent notes and you have like like you, you have this whole hierarchy that a note has to move through and like it's not a digestive system right it's like whatever works it doesn't have to go one way and come out the other it can go in and out wherever you want it to be so you can create highly atomic notes you can create outlines just from scratch if you want to now don't be confined by anything you know it's your it's your world you close your eyes the universe ceases to exist so (laughs) tell me how to take notes no no (laughs) inspired by it yeah yeah
0: it's personal knowledge management not knowledge management the personal is like the the key word in there uh i'm still laughing at big chungus notes (laughs) i don't know why that's so funny to me (laughs) um i'm i'm curious how does it feel to use the system that you've developed
1: uh, I don't know if I have fully developed it yet because I constantly keep changing things. You know, like I started with a completely messy Evernote structure like back in the yeah. day. And then for academia, I used Notion. I thought, like, oh, I'll learn Notion. This seems like a much better thing. But even that became somehow unsustainable with all these endless tables everywhere. And uh, then I switched to Obsidian and it became much better, but still incredibly messy and really lacked a lot of structural elements that I really heavily rely on now. But I think the biggest thing that you gain from any of those things is the element of surprise. And that's really the the beauty of things, because you will uncover, you will surprise yourself. You'll make little gifts to your future self all the time. Because you, you move through your notes and then you realize, oh, okay, that concept is related to this and this and that. And it's like, oh my God, yes, I have this data. Let's put this in the project right now. And you could have never remembered it because it happened six months ago, you read something we're like a little fact or a nugget that you can really use to prove a point when you're writing your introduction chapter and you completely forgot because introduction chapters are notoriously difficult in that sense if you're new to a topic like I am a computer scientist coming to ecology I don't know nothing about ecology so for me everything is new and nothing is like oh yeah of course it's like this so how do you build those things where you can just like ah, throw in and I know that this is you know increases by 40% blah blah, blah with climate change so it's like a little fact that that's just makes you much more grounded in things. And those surprises, I think that's the biggest uh, element. And the other thing is just, you know where things go and it's like you don't waste anything. I think it's a little bit like maybe, I you know, cooking. And at the beginning you waste a lot because you know that half of your dishes will be completely indigestible and not, not good at all. <laughs> and uh, so you would not dare to buy like really fancy ingredients because you know you'll waste them. But <laughs> once you get really good, you're like, yeah, sure, I can do the Gordon Ramsay act with some sea urchin caviar on top or whatever, because I know that I'll nail those eggs. I've done them a hundred times. And it's the same thing here. You 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 know how to cook, so you know where things go. You know you're not wasting the time that you put in into actually writing that note.
0: Yeah. Oh, I resonate with that a lot. Like uh, w- when you have some sort of System set up. It makes it makes the whole process of consuming much more. Uh, it feels great because like you know that things are going to happen when when you're consuming, and uh, <laughs> I'm 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 reflecting on what you're saying as well because is one of the biggest issues that I ran into when I started getting into personal knowledge management was the collector's fallacy, which mm-hmm. is where you just collect as much information as you can. Uh, Like think, uh, imagine I was at a grocery store and I hadn't eaten for a week and I walked in, I got my new Rome research set up and I just start grabbing everything. I'm getting like some sausage from the meat aisle. Give me some of those potato chips. Give me some of that chocolate. Give me Mm -hmm. that. Oh, there's some Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I just started Mm -hmm. loading my cart Mm -hmm. and it was insane how much time I wasted (laughs) so on that note what what have you done to navigate the collector's fallacy with your personal knowledge management
1: yeah I think that is really a spiritual question and that's the thing because as uh, people of this western society you know material and possession is in the center of things that we do so naturally, we will do this with information. We will do this with relationships, with anything. But you know, understanding that things are fleeting, that things can be wasted, that you can consume without getting any output out of that, that's something that is actually very strong. And um, my teacher back in India, he was always speaking about the, the scarcity mentality, which creates this stark <laughs> materialism, because you always need... Uh, you, you always don't have enough. yeah. So that's the war generations. They don't have enough. So they, they really preserve food. They preserve everything. And so this mindset basically creates what we would now call maybe this collector's fallacy, I think, in part, at least, because we really want to preserve everything. But we we're completely unrelated to this generation back then. It's just this idea that still reverberates through the, the minds of the people. So to really let go of it, you have to be wasteful. You know, you have to Mm. be uh, Mm. leisurely strolling through things, leaving food on your plate, even though it really hurts you to leave the food on your plate, so to speak. Like really say, okay, well, here's, you know, $20 to this homeless person, or let's just throw away things that we don't need. Let's, uh, you know, get everything to a second shop. Let's move places. Like be completely reckless in a way with, with how you treat material goods. And then the same way you start not being so obsessed about like all this knowledge. So at the end, you know, you and I were going to be dead. And in 100 years, maybe 200 years, nobody will remember our names. But none of that really matters. You know, it's not such a big deal to forget things. But um, yeah, so w- what I do, but you okay, know, practical, uh, practical is I usually have, you know, collector's fallacy in academia is I want to read this paper. But obviously, there's 100 papers that you want to read. And so the typical way is <laughs> to put it into my reference manager or somewhere and, and store it. That's a really bad idea. So what I do instead is I have a really curated reading list where I exactly say why I want to read something. So I say, read this paper to understand so-and-so concept or to really deepen my understanding or to see a counterpoint to this and that. And then when I come back to it, the reason why I wanted to read it doesn't make any sense anymore. You know, the collector's fallacy is, is okay to collect, but you have to know why you collect. It's not the collecting for the sake of the collecting. It's collecting to, again, be a detective and solve some sort of puzzle. And if you give yourself that little clue why you want to read or consume a certain piece of information, that will make it much easier than when you have time to actually choose what do you want to truly consume, what do you really want to spend time on. And you'll realize that your reading list is full of stuff that that's, is meaningful, but it's just not relevant. You know, mm. And this, this difference between meaningful or relevant is something that, that you learn to differentiate. And for me, that's really a very well curated reading list. And I, for example, I don't understand why any reference managers, no reference manager has this feature to just put a comment next to a paper that I want to read. It's like the most mm. basic thing that I really see and I can somehow sort by these comments and that, that's really hard to do. And so that's why I do it in Obsidian. And then I can you know, just pull all the reading lists and then you know, structure them by topic and so on with, with tags. And so that yeah. makes it easier to, to collect at the same time, not to spend time on the collection. So I collect the intent to collect.
0: Hello, everyone. I wanted to remind you that you can sign up for the waitlist to the art of linked reading in the description below. This course helps people who struggle to find, actively consume, remember, communicate, and apply insights from books. Learn to do so with linked note-taking apps like Obsidian, Tana, OneNote, and more. So if that sounds like you, you are in the right place. Go to the podcast description below and sign up for the waitlist. Let's say, Ooh, ooh, I like that last line. Mm -hmm. I resonate so much with what you said at the beginning there, because I think there's this tendency in the personal knowledge management community to treat a lot of the big PKM issues like collector's fallacy, like how do I organize, like whatever, whatever, et cetera, et cetera as problems with the tool that you're using instead of underlying spiritual issues or like like issues you have with yourself, right? Like the the problem for your over collecting is not that you're using Rome Research or Obsidian or insert X tool. Uh, It's that you have... FOMO, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and there there is something inside of you that is making you scared about the idea of wasting, mm-hmm. which I might be reaching here, but it, it could be like you're scared of death. So the idea of not being able to consume everything on this planet, which is obviously not going to happen because <laughs> there's more uploaded to the internet in a week than you could consume in your entire lifetime. Uh, it terrifies you. And I think a lot of my development in personal knowledge management has not only come from learning more about practical stuff, but also from learning more about myself as a person and then being able to come to my PKM system yeah. much more mindfully.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we have always need to see the the big picture because that's again one of the modern ideas is that we can find meaning by by breaking things down into their constituent parts, and we kind of miss that thing that synergy that happens when you put those parts together. So human mm-hmm. mind essentially is, is a completely synergistic system of your past traumas, experiences, proclivities, uh, desires, needs, and so on. You know, and and your physicality and so on, and, and all of that resolves in this but yet we say oh if we only just do this one thing then everything becomes better and easier like no you know you have always to see the whole thing that's where we just miss out on um you know spirituality because back in the day maybe you had some sort of religion to make you understand that that holistically that you you have a soul it's undivisible and blah blah blah. now we don't believe in that but what do we put instead now we say okay well it's just you know if you divide everything you start understanding the whole but yeah, it's also not enough. And that's why we have so much people, you know, doing astrology and tarot. And <laughs> yeah, like you need that, the human. What's your star is- sign? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pisces, by the way. That's, um, yeah. So oh, I go to emotional breakdowns and all these things.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sagittarius. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> good, good, good to know. We, we both know our star signs. Yeah. I, I completely agree. I think in the West in particular, there is this notion of fragmentation, which is the idea that you can break things down into their individual parts and explain how everything works. But mm. as you noted that neglects emergence, which is the idea that the whole is different from the sun of its parts. I feel the East has done a lot better of a job understanding that notion uh, a lot of the Eastern philosophies I've dove into, like Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, they tend to be much more uh, understanding of the idea that the whole is is completely different from from the sum. And I think that's something that in in personal knowledge management, uh, a lot of people tend to neglect as well. Uh, the idea that, like, yes, we can break down no uh things into individual atomic notes but we have to remember that there is something entirely different that is made when you combine those into like an outline or mm-hmm. uh something else right? The whole is different from the the sum of its parts. Yeah,
1: yeah I think that's also a thing with, you know, habit trackers. Those, those are the people that I always kind of a little bit look down on because like I don't <laughs> understand how you can live your life with, like, tracking everything meticulously with, like, a million tags. Like, Osho has a really good point on that. He says, you know, like, yeah, you can improve yourself and then you you um, basically train a habit to be, I don't know, better, smarter, or more organized. <clears throat> but all you become is habit. So you're just robot walking, you know? <laughs> Habitual okay. things. You, you're you dead. It says, you know, like all these things are great, but you die at the end, quite, you know, metaphorically. So much better is to, to really think about what you want. All should come from a desire to to improve and the desire to do something, not from the need or, you know, the possibility. Yeah.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: Yeah. Okay, so we're kind of drifting, I think, off, off topic.
0: <laughs> no, no, I, I loved that discussion. I think like with PKM, people... Uh, they tend to only look at the the practical aspects, and there I think there's a whole like a spiritual side to it as well. Um, in fact, uh, do you know who Bob Dodo is or no?
1: Mm-mm.
0: Dang it! Well, he's he's someone that I had previously on the podcast, and the whole episode we went down this tangent. We talked about mm-hmm. spiritual aspects of PKM the entire time. <laughs> it was cool. yeah, it was a a fascinating um, conversation. I I'm also curious. a Little bit switching topics uh, back to PKM, you mentioned that you use AI a lot inside of your note taking, and I was curious how exactly you integrate AI into it.
1: Yeah, I, I I would I wouldn't say like I use it a lot, but I am a user of of ChatGPT and all those things, so. AI, I think, is not yet at the point where it's super useful. It's kind of like maybe the computers in the 70s. They were not Mm. super useful or essential, but you you can see that very short amount of time they will be. And so the way that I use it is um, it's very nice if you take, for example, a problem, and you, you tell ChatGPT, okay, these are three solutions, give me like five other solutions, like very often, you know, statistical tests and things like that. And it actually does an incredibly good job at doing this because, you know, I don't know the intricacies of the statistical tests, but it gives me at least the names. I can look it up and then see, like, regardless whether or not it's right. But it's very often actually quite good on point with the suggestions. I use it to research questions or re- research, research questions. So another problem if you're cross disciplinary doing something, what, what is interesting to an ecologist? Like recently like my supervisor said, Oh this is super interesting I was like, What? This is interesting? Like how, how is this even, you know, related? Uh-huh. Like, it was just mind-boggling that this piece of information that I just stumbled upon and discarded immediately was interesting. So these are things you can't really know, but that's something that ChatGPT is also quite good at uh, telling you. Right, I'm just saying ChatGPT, but you can probably replace it with all the other tools. Um, but yeah, so you can you can brainstorm those questions. You can say, okay, this is the data I have. Let's see which questions can you actually answer with that data. Then puts away some, and then gives you a good list. So that's very often when I start new projects, I go through this process, and it's it's not bad. Um, I find AI very, or the most useful use case right now is actually coding. That's, for me, something that's uh, a lot of coding, and coding is, in a way, a simpler thing than, than making sense because you can go almost line by line, do this, do this, do this, to this, this, and it does a very, very good job. So mm. for that... GitHub Copilot is better than ChatGPT, but ChatGPT is great for saying, this is the problem. What are the libraries I should be using? And then it says, okay, these are the libraries. That's how the code looks like. When it's a bit more complicated, the code usually doesn't work, but it's enough to get started, I would say. Um, But when it comes to really knowledge management, I only played around with a few things, and I never found them quite satisfactory. So there's one tool where you can upload your notes or, Documents and then it creates a chatbot. Yeah, that's that's kind of the newest trend. Those chatbots. Um, sure, you know you can use it as a, an extended search function for your vault, but you can't really create so much new information. Like it's it's much better to just create this nice linking structure at the moment and just go through it and, and quickly skim through your notes. You will get more out of it than if you ask AI. And a little bit the same is often true for for um, PDF reading uh, AI, so that I use almost exclusively to search things in PDFs that I don't want to spend time reading, because the summaries I think they completely um, destroy your ability to memorize things because you don't read, you don't write. Like pff, you know, the AI gives you that, sure, you know, you you forget it the moment you get out the door this evening. So it's not really a great way, but it's good to to look, okay, what kind of data do they use? Did they apply this testing? Did they, um, you know, account for that? That's something that AI will be really good. I think that really the breakthrough will come once uh, the, um, the, the, con- the context window becomes big enough so it can fit things like my entire vault. That's 300,000 words at the moment after six months. So it's maybe, you know, by the end of my wow. piece, it's going to be... Uh, like a million things in it. Yeah, okay. There's a yeah. lot of stuff with, with this annotations that you know I highlight, and they're stored in in plain text so that I can link to them. Um, so they also count towards that word count. But um, yeah, but if if all of that would be inside of an AI, and I, I could just you know say, okay, what was the paper that was dealing with so and so, and it would give me the answer also in a reasonably short time. So very often I find that doing things the AI way is slow and I'm a bit impatient. I just very often can just look through three or four notes while AI gives me like one thing at a time. And so that becomes faster for me to use it, to do it by hand. Um, but yeah, so these these are, I would say the main use cases, really searching PDFs, coding, um, and waiting for the moment where everything is in, in one big vault and I can really um, use it. Yeah, And that's also widely available because you don't want to do that for, you know, twenty, thirty $30 a month, what it costs right now.
0: Mm. For GBT4?
1: Yeah, I mean, no, no, for, for GBT4 is one thing, you know, that's, I feel like I, I, I get my money's worth for it. That's the one thing that I'm subscribed to, but, uh, you know, like Dante AI or things like that, where you uh, mm. can, you know, create those chatbots out of your knowledge. And also then I would have to re-upload it over and over. And again, it's inconvenient. Yeah. There's a few things that integrate into Obsidian. I played with that too. So you can make little templates, they're stored as notes and you select the text, click a hotkey, and then you you basically pick a template that it's applied on, and so then it takes this text, pastes it into your template, and sends the whole thing as a prompt. So you can you know create things like summaries, blah blah blah, but uh, that's again it's it's a little bit of toy level. Um, maybe you know things like Grammarly or Paperpal uh, for academics. Those things are definitely. Um, Something that that uses AI but it's in much much weaker form, I think than the uh, this large language models that everybody refers to as AI um uh, yeah. but it's good you know it gives you like a couple of suggestions, fixes, a couple typos, so that's something that I'm really happy using.
0: It sounds yeah. like there have been some useful cases, but it's really in the next few years where it's going to get even like like a beyond toy level. Uh, From what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I I definitely resonate with that. Like, I think the way I have used AI is as a digital intern in a way. Like, I think it's it's really good in helping you do things more effectively, but it doesn't do the thinking for you. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, I think uh, one article I read, which really, uh, really tickled my bones when I read it was the end of organizing and mm-hmm. the argument was AI is going to make you never have to organize anything in your PKM system again, because it will link and tag and put stuff into folders for you. I thought that was a horrible argument because, mm-hmm. <laughs> because like, yes, it can do some innate organization features. However, there's value in the organization process itself, because it helps you understand it better, right? Like the creation of an outline, the creation of what Nick Milo would call a map of content is where I get some of my most value when I'm in my note-taking system, because I come out with this whole new understanding of the top-down structure of something that I want to learn. And if I just clicked a button and I was like, CHAP-GPT, do it, (laughs) and then it did it for me, I wouldn't get that benefit.
1: Yeah. Well, I I would say that it's probably this whole idea of structure is something that you're just not concerned with anymore. It just happens under the radar and we access information in a different way. You know, we we ask, uh, it's just like Star Trek. And I say, computer, like, what is so-and-so? Like, calculate so-and-so. Like, the information Mm -hmm. is there, but how it's stored is almost secondary. Just like the internet, yes. So the websites are stored on some servers if you want, but you don't really need to know where they are. You know, you just access them through Google or through other means. And uh, yeah, but for me, I also agree with what you're saying. For me, the the analogy is, you know, you have a garden, you have six garden beds here, pretty small. But if I just nilly-willy put my stuff in there, then nothing grows. So I had this experience because one has more sunlight, one gets more moisture. Three of them have this terrible wind that is everywhere in Wellington. So you have to be really mindful what you plant where. And now only at the second year, I'm starting to understand what grows where and what should I put where. And so that is in itself a piece of information now, So structure is in itself a piece of information, just like um, if you think about it, we always think of notes as being the carriers of information. But I think it's not really true. Like the links are the carriers of information. If you link that uh, you know, something, like let's say you have protein A, you have protein B, there, you know, what, what do you want to know about this protein? It doesn't really matter. The function matters, but the function is a connection of protein A to you know process X. So in that, that this protein does something in this process, that's the thing that you can publish. So you publish that you discovered a new link, and so the linking is really the, the thing, and and structure is nothing else but you know top level linking. It's just you link. A note to a folder, or you put the note in a folder. It's the same thing. So yeah, I think uh, definitely it's that's, That's just adding more information and we're trying to outsource it, trying to be lazy. But yeah,
0: maybe that's <laughs> one day.
1: But I hope uh, I hope that that actually you know it feels sometimes it worries me almost to think about that. So many things will go. Like how will the world look like if if all of these things that we do? Uh, so you know we pride ourselves on doing them, and then suddenly. Something takes it away and does it better. You know,
0: that that last comment reminds me of something that I've been thinking a lot about recently, which is uh, the the notion in Western society, which is technology and innovation is often seen as an inherent good. Like, oh, AI can do better things now, faster, smarter, that's good.
1: Uh, Mm -hmm. Oh, there's
0: another note-taking app that can have AI integrated into it and it can do all this other stuff. And I think the problem with that is it doesn't take into account whether the technology, the, the innovation that is occurring, uh, helps humans live to their values (laughs) better. Mm -hmm. Uh, like we've, we've expanded so much in technology, but have we become wiser as, Mm -hmm. as a human species? And I think that's where the the fear that I have with like these AI apps really come in for me is like, you know, has the internet and social media actually made us better people? Uh, is the next big technology shift, which looks like it's going to be AI, going to make us better people, or or no? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's. I guess we have to believe in in something that is in a way magical or mystical and at this point it's technology you know back back in the day you would think of an afterlife and that's what you're aiming for now you're aiming for technology solving all your problems not not heaven and the angels. so yeah well, why, why not you know as a species we have to experiment we have to we have to go and explore what what is it that we actually want because it's the same yeah. as new grow up you know, you, you want one thing, you want to be a fire, what is it, um, firefighter, yeah, and uh, then you, up, <laughs> you actually don't want to be a firefighter, I actually want to be a paleontologist, and then you realize, ah, actually, I can't draw, I can't do this either, let's do something else, you know, let's, let's become, yeah. you know, a PKM person. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, I think that definitely, it's it's always, the, the beliefs always come kind of first, and the reasons for beliefs later, that's a quote that I like.
0: Mm, mm. Oh, I like that as well. <laughs> uh, what are three books that have resonated with you most?
1: Well, since we talked about uh, Tantra a little bit, so Osho's book on Tantra, I don't know, it's called Tantra, the Supreme Understanding or something like that. That's mm-hmm. hands down, I think, one of the best books that I've read in a long time. But I've also read many books on on this whole philosophy. Like the tantric philosophy in a nutshell is just to do whatever you want. It's a non restrictive philosophy. And uh, then most other doctrines, we always divide things in good and bad. And we try to eliminate the bad and add the good. Yeah. So uh, add virtue or add values. Tantra says, like, no, this is actually something that just makes you habitually good, but it doesn't really make you good. Just makes you kind of this robot. That, that tries to do more and more good, and then you're afraid to go to sleep because you will dream of doing bad things. And that's already a transgression. It's kind of a thing that, that Osho is always saying.
0: <laughs> um,
1: yeah, so that that is something that Tantra kind of takes care of. It says instead, you know, relax, like really, really relax. Just don't do anything. Don't fall into this trap of having to have constant activity. Instead, in, from activity, move to action, you know, react when the situation demands it, don't do anything if the situation doesn't demand it. And so you slowly relax and you slowly understand what you actually want in life. And you start moving towards what you really, really want. And in that sense, Tantra is a little bit controversial because it says, if you want to be evil, be evil, you know, but be evil because you want to be evil, not because of your past childhood traumas and how you've been treated as a child, like do things because you really want to do them. And that's where it becomes really difficult. And so I think that's just my whole life and outlook on life and like what I'm capable to do, like my confidence, it all based down in, in this philosophy. So I, I absolutely, absolutely recommend that. And in the same in the same vein, um, everything by Alain de Bouton, like the, the School of Life is pretty popular about relationships, emotions, media, uh, is very, very powerful stuff because it's also very pragmatic, just tells you, It's normal to be weird. Uh, It's you know your your confidence comes from relaxation rather than dominance. That's something that I really like Um, because yeah the the more you relax the more you you, you're capable of dealing with 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 the world. The the analogy is uh, traffic in India. Yeah, so if you've ever been in India, (laughs) fifty five cars. The only street sign is okay honk, and you're like what the hell? What am I supposed to do? This like nineteen twenty sign for honking. Uh, and then you realize uh, yeah actually it works it works if you become aware of how things work and you really react to the situation you're you're pretty safe you know even despite the the chaos that happens everywhere around you you don't need <laughs> no rules and uh, that's that's something that can be learned from all of these books you know the, the school of life books and and osho's books um but i feel like you you would expect me to name at least some some sort of self-help book and I have to admit, I like them because self-help books are usually summarized in five sentences and they don't go so deep as to really change who you are. They just tell you, yeah, that's a good habit. So one of those good habit books is The the Miracle Morning, a complete classic. And I think it has a deeper meaning that that the author is even not aware of and that people have actually been doing for millennia before him. But the basic idea is get up and do things for yourself. He was like, okay, those five things you have to do, you have to journal, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't matter. Like it matters that you get up and the first thing in the morning that you do is dedicate time to yourself, consecrate yourself, be it through uh, diaries, like journaling, be it through prayer or puja or just going out for a run or any or all of them. That is something that really changes you because it, first of all, puts yourself first. So if you put yourself first, you really have a different attitude to what you're doing. It's secondary to who you are. And very often we just get trapped in like doing something for the sake of doing, for the sake of obligation. If you lose your job today, if you change your PhD, it doesn't matter. It's not so bad. If you had a bad day, if it rains, it actually also doesn't really matter because you like even if you cease to exist, even if you die, it doesn't really matter. That's the beauty of it, you know? But because you dedicate time to yourself first, you put yourself first. You know, you, you really indulge into life, into this brief moment that you have on this uh, planet. And uh, yes, yeah, so I think uh, this these are the three books. But um, yeah, if you want a more philosophical, like brilliant philosopher is Byung-Chul Han. He asks questions like, what has Brazilian waxing and Facebook in common? What do they have in common? <laughs> and, oh, that's uh, Yeah, so Byung-Chul Han, he's, he's very popular. But because he writes in German, I think it's, it's very much in German, even though he's a Korean person. Um, things like the transparency society and so he's saying that everything is geared towards being really uh, accelerated yeah so brazilian waxing and social media have in common that they try to minimize resistance <laughs> yeah? so they try to minimize friction and resistance you know for you know hands or whatever or for uh for the flow of information So that's why you don't have a dislike button. The dislike button would would create controversies, discussions, like friction. Instead, you want a like button and you want as many likes as possible, as many views as possible, just this quick dopamine hit, move on, move on, move on. There's a flow of information that goes. And so that reading his books allowed me to just slow down and see things a little bit more in perspective, I would say.
0: Mm. Wow. I am writing all three of those things down. That was... (laughs) great descriptions my goodness uh particularly the tantric philosophy i have not dove into that yet and i've dove into quite a few uh other philosophies like uh, stoicism buddhism fusionism taoism love those so i'd be interested to see where that that uh sits in between those very oh.
1: controversial, but my teacher used to say all of those kind of originated in Tantra because Tantra goes back to, to Vedic scriptures. And that is oh. much older than uh, the the kind of the Buddhist scriptures that comes. And then, you know, Taoism comes from the, the Buddhist ideas and so on. Um, but yeah, for me, every philosophy that, that starts denying something to you, that's not a good philosophy. Like a philosophy should embrace everything and you know, I should bring everything together and not separate in good and bad. And so that's, that's the beauty of Tantra. It really does not believe in values. And uh, the best, the best analogy is the pirate, you know, so the um, <laughs> Jack Sparrow. Jack Sparrow has actually, yeah. we had to watch that movie in the ashram, uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean, because Jack Sparrow is exactly the, the most Tantric of all characters. And he has uh-huh. this compass that only points in, in uh, the direction of his biggest desire. He uh, kind of never really hurts anybody and never really steals or does anything that is not somehow, you know, warranted by the situation. He's like scammed, you know, he comes in, the ship sinks, his ship just sank. And then the the guy at the port says, "Okay, well, you have to pay the fee for the ship. And so he pays him a last coin and now he has no money. But then he walks out and sees that, that the guy's wallet basically is sitting there. And so he steals it. He steals it almost because the situation, uh, not because of malice or because he wants to steal. He's like, okay, I have no money. I paid something that should not need to be paid. And so I just kind of take advantage of it. I dance. I dance with these things without being too moralistic, too good or too bad. Oh, stealing is bad. Like, yeah, I don't know. It is bad in a way to organize society. But in its essence, nothing is bad and nothing is good. You know, we make it so.
0: I got so Blackbeard on my podcast. My God. <laughs> that's so funny. I've never, I've never thought of the Pirate of the Caribbean movies through the tantric lens. But now that you say that, like that makes so much sense. Uh, he does like embody that philosophy really well. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm excited to, to dive into that. Mm-hmm. What do you wish your past self had known at the beginning of your PKM journey?
1: Uh, Honestly, I think the the biggest importance in PKM is to stick to one thing and not to try to reinvent the wheel, Uh, because first of all, your proficiency grows. So it's just like with playing an instrument, you know, stick to one instrument if you really want to master it. Uh, But if you just get to a level where you can play a little bit of each instrument, you're no good, no orchestra. So stick to one thing and really learn to how to play it, because that that's Really helps you be more comfortable with it, and second, you aggregate that aggregation actually is something that that gives you the um this compounding effect of taking notes now because Mm -hmm. you won't see the effect of by having like 50 or 100 notes, you can perfectly store it in any order with any structure. But once you get like to a thousand notes, that's where your your brain kind of shuts down uh, in terms of remembering where things are, and so that's Mm -hmm. where this is great and you have to to learn it and to stick to it to really um, facilitate that and uh, yeah second don't don't treat all these pKm people as uh, some some sort of gurus you know just mix and match you know you're, you're your own person you can take whatever you want you don't need to follow any certain school of life uh, but i think mentors are incredibly important you know people that you trust and believe in and you really follow it because it's less so that they are good but more because it motivates you so the, the, the person that you follow can also be like an abstract thing or an abstract philosophy. So something that is really like a guiding star in terms of how you run everything. Mm. So is a great way. You could apply that to your PKM system and just follow that. You know, it doesn't have yeah. to be a person, yeah. So that's yeah. that's one thing. Um yeah, and the other thing is maybe you know, we always treat notes as a means of storage. And to write our own ideas, we almost need permission because the note is some some sort of source of truth. It's something external. And I feel that's what, what I struggled with a lot. And just starting to write my own thoughts, that, that was a big liberation. But I could only do it after I uh, kind of introduced a new little style element. Like in Obsidian, you can do those single quotes, and you can you can style them to appear a little bit differently. And so I started to uh, write in this uh, you know s- single-bracketed quotes um, something that was completely my idea like completely random like harsh criticism of the things and i would not allow myself to do <laughs> that so like i would just collect what the author said and just kind of organize that neatly but no you know just go and, and write your own stuff as well but differentiate between the two
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, yeah so you don't need permission for anything so yeah I would, say, I would say this and um yeah tools really don't matter so much so that's a big thing that i learned like really tools don't matter so much. They're all pretty much good and they're all pretty much terrible at some other things. Wow. It really doesn't matter. Um, yeah.
0: Wow. That those, All four of those were phenomenal. And uh, I, I think the interesting thing about the third one in particular, like not writing down your own thoughts in academia because you feel that notes have to be for truth rather than for understanding is particularly interesting because... I think that's something that, especially in academia, you would see. Whereas, like, I don't think that would be as common in uh, Mm. PCAM outside of academia. Yeah. What is your favorite brand and consistency of peanut butter?
1: Oh, my God. There's only two brands in New Zealand. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. No! Yeah, Fix and Fog, they have a, a dark chocolate <laughs> peanut butter. That's pretty amazing stuff. You can just spoon it out of your bathtub that you're sitting in and surrounding yourself with the peanut butter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: That's an image that's in my head now. Yeah. <laughs> so 16 and Fog is... Fix
1: yeah, is and the... Fog, they're called. But Fix I don't think fog. they sell outside of... Maybe you know they sell in Australia somewhere, but definitely not yeah. in America.
0: Oh, I was about to go to the store and get some i'm just i'm gonna have to stick with my teddy crunchy peanut butter then uh if yeah. there's no six and fug. <laughs> is is yeah. there any questions I haven't asked you that you would like me to ask
1: um no, I feel like we kind of worked them in. I was thinking that you know this this whole idea of uh the fear of a i and like where it leads us that that would be something that that I find interesting but I actually have no answer to. <laughs> and I just go go in and out of uh, being a little bit cautious about it, and then uh, moving to actually, it's a great tool to enhance my own thinking, especially when ChatGPT gives me something. But yeah, I feel um, like that's the first time in history that we are more or less, or at least for me, uh, that we are afraid of the technology that we create. You know, there's hesitancy. Like, I asked a colleague, like, oh, I don't use ChatGPT. He's like, no, I hate ChatGPT, like this categorical statement. I don't think she really hates it. It's just that, you know, there's, there's fear that this takes away mm. something. And uh, yeah. maybe when the atomic bomb was invented, you know, our parents' mm. parents or generation, like one or two generations ago, people thought something like that, you know, like, oh my God, the world can go completely be completely a different world in, in 10 years. And I feel like now is the same moment. And we didn't have that with, with any other technology. Everything else was like, oh yeah, great. But you know, computers were great, but they were toys, they became more important. They kind of you know grew over 40, 50 years. Um mm-hmm. but with AI it's just so quick and you know so so powerful. And uh, somehow you know there's yeah. constant improvement in and reasoning. And that's the last frontier is to get this this kind of reasoning right. And yeah. Logic. Yeah. And the, once once that happens, then yeah, it's pretty challenging. Like, what do we do? You know, that, that's why that's why I started reading sci-fi about immortal people in the far future and like they're completely hedonistic and completely <laughs> uh, yeah, like giving into any frivolities that they can think of. And I thought, yeah, maybe that's that's gonna be it. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> It's, it's either going to be Terminator or it's going to be what you just described, where everyone falls for hedonistic, <laughs> yeah. hedonistic pleasures. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a really good point. Like the only two major times in history where we've been scared of technology are the atomic bomb and AI. I would argue, honestly, in my generation, I'm terrified by social media and Internet's effect on Mm. everyone else around me but no one else seems to be uh it just seems to be me i'm i'm absolutely horrified at how it's affected most of the people around me but
1: (laughs) yeah it definitely makes people much more uh, timid like i don't know because now i'm I'm kind of I'm, i'm almost 40 you know i'm sitting with people that are in their early 20s and i can see that there's so much timidity and also because of this timidity there's so much not open I feel to the people very often that they, they, yeah. they don't leverage the opportunities they could be having if they would just like go out and, and be a little bit more confrontational, I would say. Maybe that's, yeah. that's something that I that I noticed that people somehow don't like that as much anymore. It just becomes also, I mean, especially in America, you know, with this huge polarization, Like it's difficult. If you say anything political, it's super, super controversial. If you say anything religious, it's controversial. Now, if you say anything like with the... Uh, this, this gender, race, uh, all those things, they become more and more taboo topics because it's so easy to misstep or to say something that is wrong. And so that becomes uh, like you, you have to be more timid to be successful. So it's, it makes sense yeah. in a way. Yeah. You
0: know, Maybe they could learn to, to be more like Jack Sparrow and adopt yeah. tantric yeah. philosophy. Jack exactly. <laughs> yeah. Sparrow is yeah. just,
1: you know, sometimes to do the right thing, you have to do the wrong thing. It's also one of these things yeah uh, but yeah i think uh, i think the tantric philosophy is really a, a great liberator and it has always been because the, the way it actually started a first way of feminism that's how my teacher always taught it was in the 19th century where uh, a group of victorian ladies discovered the orgasm through uh, the female orgasm through through tantric uh, books that came <laughs> out. because not so much because it, it's been there but because there's some somebody gave the permission to for, for women to enjoy things for men to enjoy just to enjoy you know it was a big liberator in a way, and uh, I think that's the idea of philosophy is that it should always be a liberator from the status quo, tantric or not yeah, the same with wow. enlightened philosophy and things like that, so we really should should read more of those things, but not in a simplistic way but really in an experiential way. We have mentors' yeah. it's something that our society also heavily lacks. Um, is mentorship, I think,
0: mm. and yeah. also what you just said, like the idea of reading a book and feeling instead of thinking conceptually about the propositions. Yeah. Like, I think that's, uh, I, I mean, even even reading is a, is a lost art <laughs> in mm-hmm. a lot of people, uh, but uh, much less like reading and and experiencing the emotions that come up uh Ilya, this has been wonderful where, where can people reach you outside of the podcast
1: uh well my website theeffortlessacademic.com. that pretty much has all the information to all the blogs stuff that i've been writing courses that i've been doing the link to my twitter profile like everything is there it's easy to remember theeffortlessacademic.com. and yeah i'd say that's that's the best way to reach me
0: yeah great well viewers can find that in the description below Uh, Thank you so much for coming on again, and I hope everyone that's listening has a phenomenal rest of their day. Hello, everyone. I wanted to remind you that you can sign up for the waitlist to The Art of Linked Reading in the description below. This course helps people who struggle to find, actively consume, remember, communicate, and apply insights from books. Learn to do so with linked note-taking apps like Obsidian, Tana, OneNote, and more. So if that sounds like you, you are in the right place. Go to the podcast description below and sign up for the waitlist.